I think it's important to remember that people are not suicidal just because they're trans. Oh, that's a great call out. And not all trans people are suicidal. Also a great call out. It's not the transness that makes them suicidal. It's the right. way that people who are not trans and don't understand them treat them. Correct. We're talking about suicide today. What it is, what it isn't, and why it's important to talk about. In general, my experience as a clinician, this isn't something that people who aren't suicidal or haven't had much experience or interaction with suicidal ideation really like or feel ease in talking about. Someone I know who struggles with ongoing thoughts about death and dying shared with me recently that because it is so present in her mind so often that she can talk nonchalantly about it, like she could be brushing her teeth, and how easy it is for her to forget that there are a lot of people that aren't always thinking about those thoughts. She happens to be cisgender. People of all genders and all walks of life experience suicidal thoughts. There's not a single person who's protected from it. Trans people seem to be more vulnerable to it, but not because of their transness. Transgender identity doesn't come with suicidal ideation. Being a marginalized and oppressed person in society who's rejected by the people who are supposed to love them unconditionally, that's the kind of emotional experience that leads one to feeling like life isn't worth living. You're listening to Camp Wildheart, your guide for raising a transgender child and nurturing an affirming family. I'm your host slash head counselor, Mackenzie Dunham. Since transness isn't the root of suicidal ideation, but rather it's more about the way that trans people are treated in our society, this episode is going to focus a little bit more on what it means and looks like to be suicidal as opposed to being a trans person who's suicidal. And as a parent, what you can do about it when you recognize it or worry about it in your kid. Most of us were not raised to talk about suicidal thoughts. In fact, we were raised to not talk about them. Like, there's something to be ashamed of, and if someone in your family were to kill themselves, chances are that's another thing that doesn't really get discussed in a way that's healing. I can remember very clearly my mother telling me when I was young, and I'm not sure exactly how young I was, but I'm going to go with early elementary school age, that killing myself was something I should never, ever, ever, ever even consider being an option, and that people who killed themselves went to hell. I remember being confused about why she was telling me this, and I remember making sure to add this to the list of things that would put me in hell. I had been cataloging this and would definitely tell my friends later so that they could also avoid hell. This sort of advisement usually resulted in multiple concerns, angry, or disgruntled phone calls to my mother from my friend's parents, but it didn't stop me. I have an atypical relationship with suicide. I honestly can't remember when I became so comfortable talking about it. Probably in high school, I volunteered for an organization called the Trauma Intervention Program, or TIP. If you're not familiar with it, TIP volunteers provide emotional first aid at the scene of traumatic events alongside first responders. I was one of the original TIP teens for the Portland-Vancouver chapters. The training I received as a TIP volunteer taught me how to talk about hard, scary things with people who had just experienced them. I responded to I don't even know how many suicide calls, sitting with classmates, siblings, or children of someone who had just ended their life. I don't really remember how I learned that my paternal grandmother killed herself when she was 50. It wasn't her first attempt. My maternal grandmother also made several attempts and ended up institutionalized at one point. Both of my dad's sisters made multiple attempts. On her last attempt, that was very nearly a success, one of my aunts survived ultimately and ended up spending the rest of her life in a nursing home. My other aunt and I are incredibly close and talk openly about death and suicide. She told me about how her mother would make comments about how she couldn't wait to be dead and talked about suicide as if it were a perfectly reasonable option to take. When my aunt attempted for the sixth time, I told her, and this might sound messed up, but I told her it was clear that she was really bad at this and it was probably a good idea to find a new hobby. We both laughed. I still smile thinking about that moment. and. It's really opened the door for us to have a lot more really serious conversations. And I think, actually, I know, make her feel far less alone when she's in those really dark, deep, scary places. She's pretty open about when she's not doing so well. And she's doing what she needs to stay mentally well. It's hard, though. And it'll probably always be hard for her. I remember being really surprised and also not at all surprised when I had heard about her most recent suicide attempt her third attempt in three years. 
I should probably also tell you that I'm a bit of an anomaly in my family. I'm the only lifelong therapy goer and was the only one willing to talk about mental health or feelings for a really long time. My family, like most waspy families, is really rather brilliant when it comes to avoidance. Somehow, I think probably because it was the third attempt in three years, it was as if we couldn't not talk about it anymore. And I felt so relieved. It was during this time, which really wasn't more than maybe five years ago, that I learned just how far back the suicidal tendencies of the women of my family went. Other than me, and I'm pretty sure I'm the only exception here because of the lifelong therapy, also I made a career out of feelings. Every single woman in my family going back three generations has been suicidal at some point, and half of them have made attempts, and three of them have succeeded. I could not believe this legacy of suicide had not been discussed. How could I have known how serious our mental health history was, and yet not known about the suicides? And then I remembered the weird day when my mother told me that it wasn't an option, and how I'd go to hell if I did it, and I recognized with my adult brain what I couldn't recognize with my kid brain. That was her way of talking about it. Right then and there, I decided I was going to change the pattern for my kids. I was going to talk about it. I mean, I think I was probably going to talk about it anyway, but I had a moment of intention about it. I have leaned into conversations about it and, yes, made inappropriate jokes about it ever since. I want to be really clear. I get that wanting to die isn't something to joke about. In fact, I tell people all the time, we don't joke about safety, we take it super seriously, and I really do. When a kid tells me they're suicidal, or when I find out, usually from a parent or a peer, that a kid has posted some Pete Davidson-style ominous suicidal post on social media, I dive headfirst into it with them. I never skirt the issue or try to make light of it in that moment. I do tend to use humor as a balm, and I find it comes out the most when we're in the messy middle and maybe on the other side of the darkness with someone and we can use the dark humor to laugh, connect, and heal. There's no parent interview today, but there is a long section for So I Have a Question. Jess Guerrero always wanted to be a Boy Scout and comes prepared as your guest counselor to journey through all of the adventures and self-discovery at Camp Wildheart. Though afraid of the dark, they're not afraid to go to dark places with young people and their families to find some hope and reason for staying alive. When not at Camp Wildheart, they utilize their training in social work and nerdy gender studies degree to help gender diverse youth and adults navigate exploring their identities and identifying ways to feel affirmed. They also bring their fierce and tender heart into parenting their two-year-old and loving on the various members of their relationship constellation. They come to Camp Wildheart with almost 10 years of experience working with youth and families. Jess also has a big fancy job at a major medical institution, but because of the rules of said institution, we're leaving that part out and we're just taking all of the best parts of Jess for this conversation. So I have a question. So I'm confused. So I have a question. But what about? So I got a question. So as I've been preparing for this, you know, I keep thinking, it's going to be great because it's going to be funny because Jess is funny and I'm funny. <laughs> and, and then you're like, oh, then, suicide. And then I'm like, it's still suicide. Ooh. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that part is, I haven't, I like was Googling suicide jokes and I get all these websites that are like, <laughs> suicide is not a joke. Suicide Aww. is not funny. And I'm like. That's all true. I I get that. And so I did find that article in the Atlantic. I don't know if you Mm -hmm. looked at it or not. Yes. The suicide memes might actually be therapeutic article. So I thought it would just be interesting at some point to sort of reference this idea that because parents often freak out about their kid, like they'll like find their kid's phone and there's like suicide memes on their phone. Mm -hmm. And well, yeah, it's probably is cause for concern, you know. Like and have also. a conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Camp Wildheart, Jess. Thanks for having me. What's on the itinerary today? We're going to talk a lot about suicide. Up- yeah, I try. Everyone, you know. Everyone's favorite camp topic. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the last time that I went to summer camp, I really was looking forward to that intense deep dive into suicide that never happened. So... 
So it's a first. So Jess, of all the people that I know in my life, which is a lot of people. Yeah, you're very famous. Mm, nope, not. But <laughs> I still know a lot of people. I'm very you social and extroverted. Yes. Not nearly as many people as you do, though. That and is- <laughs> But of all the people that I do know, even in the people that I do this, that do this work, not this work being therapy for trans people, but therapists or social workers in general, as you are a social worker, there's really only a handful of people that I know who are truly really comfortable talking about suicide. And you are probably the most comfortable. Oh, Uh, that's quite the award. (laughs) It's a weird sort of like honor badge. Yeah. Yeah. If only that was a category in high school. (laughs) (laughs) In the yearbook, most comfortable talking about suicide. Nailed it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. I got voted class clown in high school. So those are like the same. Totally. I got voted most likely to return as staff. So also potentially the same. I see how that works out. So can we just start with you telling us a little bit about what makes you so comfortable with talking about suicide? Yeah, I think it's, it's, both a personal and a professional journey. I I will say that I have been chronically passively suicidal since probably the age of 15. And so I think I first got comfortable with it, sort of seeing those thoughts play out for myself and seeing what made them worse and what made them better. And really what made them better is sort of counterintuitive to what a lot of people believe, which is talking about it and talking about it honestly. So, so that's part of it. I also have had a lot of, I've, I've lost a lot of folks to suicide and, mm-hmm. and have watched the people who survived those suicides kind of go through their own process around it and sometimes naming it as, as a suicide, sometimes attributing it to something else and just the undercurrent of shame that is associated with it. And even before I found Brene stuff, there was just something about realizing that the more we're silent about it, the more people are going to suffer in silence, both the folks mm. who think about attempt or complete suicide and the people that are in their world, that the silence was going to continue and the shame was going to continue. And so I sort of set out without much, I would say, support or direction, because there's not a lot out there that says, here's how you get comfortable with it. And then once you're comfortable with it, here's how you ask about it and talk about it. But I just thought, what would 15-year-old me have wanted someone to ask. And Mm. 15-year-old me was someone who was trying to figure things out identity-wise, had a solid group of friends, which I think was very protective, but didn't have a lot of language around feelings and felt things very intensely and was curious and appreciated when other people were curious. And so I feel like I just got curious about death. And what people think it's going to do for them. So just for the sake of the non-social workers that listen to this podcast, (laughs) which I assume is most humans, you said in the very beginning there that you have struggled with chronic passive suicidal ideation for since you were 15. So Mm -hmm. break that down for the non for the non-social worker. Right. So what's passive suicidal ideation? Passive suicidal ideation, like many things, I think has individual meanings to people, but it means that I don't actively think about how I'm going to end my life. Instead, I will have thoughts about death or the way that it presents for me is thoughts about escaping or you know, taking a break or, you know, what happens if I get in a car accident today? 
and, and things like that. So not actually things that I'm necessarily going to do for myself or to myself, but things that would result in potential injury or death by some other act, some other external act. And, and I think as we talk tonight, you know, well, I, I don't have all the answers, but it's all about getting curious and letting people know that there doesn't have to be silence and that it's cliche, but that there is going to be someone that will listen and that might be there in that critical moment to say, you know, how do you know this is worth it? Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I'm really disappointed. You don't know all the answers. Well, if I did, I don't think <laughs> you'd be a social worker. <laughs> I'd be a social worker. <laughs> Actually, I would still act. I, well, you know, I used to want to train penguins, but I was told really? I was too short. Yes. Yeah. That was my backup career pr- plan. There's a height requirement for that job. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because if you are too short, either the wetsuit doesn't come above your heart line, so the water is too cold and you'll get hypothermia, or sometimes, depending on the water level, your eyes might be too close to the penguins when they're eating. So so there you have it. But... <laughs> I, I never knew this about you, and I, I really don't know what to say to that. <laughs> It's fine. You know, I'm glad you to, became a social worker. I'll we need to have some non sequiturs to to break up <laughs> to break up the heavy. I um, know. I mean, that's the thing. You know, like this is such a heavy topic, and I can't imagine like listening to us talk about this really heavy topic for 45 minutes. So I feel like we're gonna need the penguin jokes mm-hmm. in here. Yeah, and that's okay. Absolutely. Yep. But no, I think I at the end of the day, I would choose social work. There are multiple times where I've tried to run away or switch directions and I just always find my way back. I often say that I have a little bit of Holden Caulfield syndrome from Catcher in the Rye Mm -hmm. where there's some like dark and twisty romantic dreamer in me that believes that if we get curious enough, we can figure out how to save the children and the adults. So there you have it. (laughs) Yeah. It's one of my favorite parts about you. (laughs) We're on the same mission. I feel That's right. We only have one agenda, keeping kids and other people alive. Keeping people alive. That's it. That's my agenda. Yeah. So let me ask you this. What's your, earliest memory of trying to talk with someone about suicide and their reaction to it from my like personal experience or when I was yeah being on the on the the suicidal end Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I think the first time I remember it coming up was actually the day I came out to my mom officially I had I had posted online prior to that and then was shocked that other people found out because what I didn't people yeah. read the internet I did not Even understand I did not understand how the interwebs worked in the dark ages but she had probably a three or four month lead time until I dragged her into the school psychologist's office and said mom I'm not straight which is actually probably the most accurate descriptor that I could come up <laughs> with at the time and she was like, yeah, yeah, I know. And then turned and said to the psychologist, so I know queer kids are more at risk for, for suicide. And, you know, Jess has been pretty depressed. So what do I need to look out for? And at the time I was, you know, super adolescent, huffy. How dare she thinks I'm going to kill myself because I'm queer. Yeah, exactly. Super attitude. And now that I look back, I'm like, that was actually a pretty sophisticated response. And I do believe that she was scared to death, that she was going to lose me. And I still think there are times now where I approach similar presentations and we don't talk about it openly, but I can tell like the concern in her voice. And and we actually haven't sort of brought that subject up since then. But that's that's one of the things that I'm working on in terms of trying to, you know, 
build my shame resilience, (laughs) particularly in that relationship. So yeah, that's the first memory I have. You know, the, the counselor, the psychologist didn't do any major in-depth safety planning with me because I think at that point we had been working together for many months and I think she sort of understood my cycle and my way of thinking and, and that based on our agreements and her assessment, I wasn't at imminent risk. So, and for our non-social Imminent worker, risk yes, meaning that yes. you're going to like go out <laughs> and myself. do it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I promise I'm, I'm a common person. <laughs> I can speak humans, not <laughs> social work all the time. <laughs> it's crazy how it just sort of becomes really ingrained in us. You know, I, I truly true. believe like social work is in my bones and it's very hard for me sometimes to remember that not everybody speaks social work. It's, yeah. It really is like its own. Yeah. Like friends thing. and partners just stare at me <laughs> blankly. And I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean? You you didn't you didn't take a class in this? Go take a class. <laughs> the number of times I have to remind myself that my spouse did not have the same education that I did. I'm like, oh, right. Right. They didn't right. go to like intense reflection school for three years. <laughs> they didn't yeah. read all of these books about feelings. And they trauma. Hate feelings. Damn it. Okay. <laughs> well, this is going to be fun. <laughs> I mean, I hate feelings too, but. You know, well, we you're all... working on that though. I, I am. Under construction. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love feelings. You do love feelings. But it's, I've been in therapy since I was like eight, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had like a seven-year head start on me, so mm-hmm. you win. I mean, really, I was only in therapy when I was eight for like a couple of years, and then I was done, and then I went again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good times. Um, so when, let's, let's talk about other people's therapies experiences mm-hmm. um, as being on the clinician end. You know, working with trans kids – you and I both see a lot of suicidal ideation, mm-hmm. right? And I kind yeah. of feel like we both have this sort of like sixth sense about it, you know, not I see dead people, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I I would agree with that, that even when someone isn't coming right out and saying it, there's sort of like an instinctual knowing. And I I don't mean that Mm -hmm. in terms of some formulaic assessment of someone's risk factors, but it's, it's, it's sorry. Am I jargony again? A little bit. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Formulaic assessment of risk factors. (laughs) I mean, it's even almost 10 o'clock at night and I'm using fancy words. I'm sorry, everybody. That's because you regularly work this late. (laughs) (laughs) accurate (laughs) so it's it's not this sort of equation or or like i'm looking in a textbook and and saying this person has experienced these particular things and therefore i know they're suicidal it's it's more of that feelings base and and some of it is honestly sort of checking myself and making sure it's not my stuff coming up to to sort of place on that other person but i actually do feel like being a survivor of chronic suicidal ideation has given me a set of knowledge that that other people don't necessarily have from lived experience to be able to sort of look across the room and say there is sort of a sheer shared reality here, even though we may have different, very different experiences, very different thoughts about death and dying and what it will do for us. But there's a level of knowing that, um, that I think isn't trainable in some ways. Yeah. Like where you've got that lived experience of having that chronic suicidal ideation, whereas I have, the lived experience of being surrounded by suicidal people mm-hmm. f- for as long as I can remember. Right. So right. it's. What do you think that did to your level of knowing? 
I'm the host of the show. I'm sorry. <laughs> I told you it's all about getting curious. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. Okay. Get curious about your own self. No, I'm just kidding. That's uh, fine that you ask me questions. Um, mm-hmm. I think that it just really helped me sort of tune in to when people are – there's that deeper level of depression and knowing what a mask looks like and being able to sort of go like, oh, that's that's not authentic or there's something under that and just being able to recognize pretty – I would, how would I describe it? It's like when you, there's so many (laughs) things I could compare this to. Like, it's like when you have a skill that you're like really, 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 really good at um, Mm -hmm. because you've been doing it for a really super long time. I could compare it to golf. This is stupid. No. I'm not going to. How about I'll compare it to music? Yeah. Music is good. Okay. So like, I feel like you're an experienced musician and you hear a piece of music, you hear it in totally different dimensions than somebody who doesn't have a trained ear, right? Who hasn't gone through mm-hmm. this lifelong learning. And you can hear just the littlest things and go, wow, okay. I can I can hear what's happening. Like I can yeah. visualize that instrument being played and the the fingers and where they're at on the instrument and how that um and everything about it just by hearing it and i feel like my experience i mean the double whammy of like spending a lifetime in therapy and also being surrounded by people who did not spend a lifetime in therapy i was like the only one in my family that went to therapy forever and everybody else really needs to go and (laughs) we have done all the work and all the growth it's someone else's Mm -hmm. turn (laughs) it's not i mean i still go yeah, I mean, it's me part too. of our business plan as there as social workers to keep yes. each other in business. It's mm-hmm. part of Take. the pact. <laughs> yeah, I go to therapy so that you know we never run out of clients. Mm-hmm. Just kidding, we'll never run out of clients. Um, but that's what it's been. That's what it is for me. It's like that knowing of really knowing my own emotion mm-hmm. and really being able to see in people when they are not. Like they're fighting really hard not to feel theirs. You know? Yeah. And I think it's um it's kind of a double awareness too, because I feel like some of my folks who are struggling the most are also the ones that are the most resilient. Mm. Or have mm-hmm. so it's almost like this resiliency barometer too, where even if someone isn't claiming that for themselves or recognizing their own strengths, there's also that sort of intuition as well. And a belief that maybe eventually that person might, might see it for themselves, not necessarily because of anything that I do, but maybe it's less of a belief and more of a hope. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But yeah, I, I feel like those things go hand in hand where, the story I'm listening to is one of adversity and trauma and tragedy. And there's not a lot of necessarily emotional connection to it. And that's usually where I have that hit of, Oh, this person's really struggling, but is afraid to talk about it and afraid to name exactly how much they're struggling. And they're also afraid to name what about them is so magical that they wake up and fight for themselves every day. So. Yeah. Cause trans kids are magical. They really are. Yeah. Really are. And so courageous, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. if you don't know trans kids, people listening to this, if you don't know any, one, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast. And two, <laughs> get to know some because you're missing out. Um, so you you mentioned that sort of matter-of-factness or flatness that sometimes we hear when people are telling stories that are full of tragedy and trauma. What are some warning signs 
And not just the ones that we hear about, like, they stop bathing. And because, like, there's a lot of reasons why trans kids don't like to bathe. And I haven't even covered that yet. But that's on the next episode. <laughs> later on dysphoria, let's talk about baths and showers. Um, but, like, what are some things that we would want parents to sort of really be on the lookout for? Because one thing I hear from parents a lot is, like, I had no idea. And I know that kids are really good at hiding things. And I know that families are really good at avoiding talking about hard things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like every kid is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Just like we talk about how every identity experience and every transition is a little bit different. But... I get actually most concerned about the kids who've been flat or sad or depressed or isolated who suddenly have an uptick in energy. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking like, you know, someone who might be experiencing emerging whatever mental health diagnosis related right, to not that. Right, like we're bipolar or something. Yeah, exactly. But like, oh, I've made the decision to do it and I'm feeling good now. Yeah. Because I know like this I is going to be over soon. I feel relieved. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's also the the subtle things too and the passing comments about, you know, none of this matters anymore or what's the point. And I think it's very, very easy to dismiss that as just teenage mm -hmm. angst. But I know I'm sort of repeating myself here, but getting curious about that. And even if it is typical teenage angst, it's still coming from something. So wouldn't it be nice to invite that conversation? And if it is something more, then maybe your kid or the kid in your life takes that invitation and starts to come out of their silence and their shame and find new ways of relating to themselves and the world. Because the reality is pro the problem is not with our kids internally. The problem is with our society and our culture. And we can affirm them in their social transition. We can help them get the medical care that they need. But unless we are inviting those vulnerable conversations where they can really name the struggles that they're having, we're not making a ton of inroads. And if we're not having courageous conversations with the external people in our lives, whether it's school systems, faith communities, extended family, we're not shifting the dial. And we're going to continue to see this epidemic where our kids are suffering. And yeah. I hate to be the doom and gloom master here because as I said, I am the hopeful romantic dreamer. And and I do see a lot of hope because in addition to our kids being so resilient, our supportive adults in their lives are fierce and fierce advocates and will take someone to the mat or a school system to the mat to make things a little bit better for their kid. And if their kid is graduating, they want to make it better for the next kid that comes along. And so this, this is... This is a community problem. It's not just isolated within our kids and teens. No, absolutely. And I think one of the big misconceptions, you know, myths about suicide, and I think a lot of parents fear it. Like the, <laughs> I had a, a parent at one point um, in my office trying to talk about self-harm and they wouldn't even say cutting or self-harm or hurting themselves. It was all like hand motions, mm -hmm. you know, like. Yeah. Yep. Motioning you know, at the wrist me, or getting yeah. the eye and like putting yeah. their hand across their arms. And I was like, you mean cutting, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like we're going to call it what it is. Um, but I think that there's this thought that if they talk about it, if we talk about it, we're going to put ideas in their head. Right. Um, and I think that's true for the, the thoughts around self-harm as well as suicidal ideation, mm. which are different things um, yeah i was gonna say we should we should talk about that a little bit <laughs> yeah yeah those are it's different 
But but that's the other thing is like parents see, you know, find out their kid is self-harming and they're like, oh, my God, my kid's going to kill themselves. And I'm like, well, there's a lot more to what's going on there. It's a different thing. And but, in fact, it might be the thing that's keeping your kid alive. And yeah. it's adaptive right now, potentially. And what I always hope the conversation becomes is, you know, you are feeling the worst pain in your life right now. And so this is the only solution you can come up with. Eventually, it's not going to work for you for any number of reasons because, you know, you have to wear short sleeves in the summer or it just isn't as effective anymore. And then you get to decide what other coping skills you want to you want to bring in. But there there are many, many people that I've worked with or been friends with or lover lovers with who who would say that for that period of time when they started cutting or burning that kept them alive. And I tend towards a harm reduction approach. And if the ultimate thing that we're trying to do is keep people alive, then then we need to think about self-harm in, in a different way. Yeah. I think I've scared so many parents when kids talk about cutting. And I'm like, let's talk about other kinds of self-harm. <laughs> and they're, they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm just... We're bringing it all out onto the table right now. Also, there are going to be kinds of self-harm that don't leave scars. So but I want to talk about harm reduction and I want mm-hmm. to talk about like how to keep your wounds clean and care for them and how you know when you need medical attention for them. And that's something that a lot of parents really get scared about. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it is scary. I would be terrified even – I know all about this stuff and I would still be terrified if I found out that – one of my kids was hurting themselves, mm-hmm. you know, because it would mean that they were in a lot of pain. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately what it is, right? It is so hard for m- many humans to sit with the pain of another human, either because it hits too close to home or they feel helpless or powerless to be able to make any change. That helplessness, I think, is a big part of it. Yeah. And so, again, I don't. I don't have the answers there. And frankly, depending on, I know you're disappointed. <laughs> I am. You're fired. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on the day, it's easier or harder for, for me to do that. You know, there are days where I feel like my bucket is full. And so I can sit there and witness hour after hour, someone in, in pain and hold that space. And then depending on, the relationship, you know, try to be there in the way that they need me to be. And then there are days where I turn into a puddle immediately after talking to someone. And, and those are potentially the days that I'm entering the work or a friendship or another relationship without my bucket being, being full. And so for the, for the adults out there, the friends of, trans kids, trans teens who might be listening. This is, this is your requisite plug for (laughs) taking care of yourself too. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that everyone is in transition and we are living just in a moment of time where we're all in a pressure cooker and, and for us to show up for each other, we, we have to be being mindful about where our meter is at when we, when we're having these conversations and, you know, I, I said, be curious, invite the conversation, but if you're not ready to hear the answer, figure out what you got to do to be ready to hear that answer. Because if you open that door and your person has the courage and bravery to, to approach it with vulnerability and you can't handle it and shut it down, that's potentially even worse than the silence. I wish that people could see my face as you were talking because I had this like dreamy like oh Jess you're saying all the right things (laughs) and and the face and then you were like and then you can't handle it and I was like oh my god that person's gonna go kill themselves (laughs) which is not a plus b equals c no that was the story that I definitely make up in my head about things like that which is definitely not what happens necessarily but yeah um but I know that's the feeling that I have when I feel like I don't react the way that I would want to. I'm like, oh, crap. Like, now if they do something, it's on my head. Because, <laughs> you know, 
I'm the I'm the Wizard of Oz. You're responsible can, for yeah, everybody. Right. I'm responsible for everyone. Mm-hmm. I can save all the children. Mm-hmm. Yes, you you all can see my pathology at this point. <laughs> yeah, so I'm glad you're going to therapy, Jess. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> everyone is under construction. A thousand percent true. Mm-hmm. So now that we've sufficiently freaked out parents, like you can't ask the question unless you can hold the space for it. Also, don't, you know, you got to ask the question because you can't pretend like it's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that one of the things that I'll add to you, whenever we make an empathy miss, which is often, because most people, if you asked a thousand people if they're good at empathy, 999 of them are going to say like, yeah, I'm great at empathy. Like I'm actually really empathetic. Um, and the truth is, is that most of those people, like the vast majority of those people really suck at empathy. It's not something that I think it just like gets trained out of us in many ways as a, Mm -hmm. especially Americans that it really makes it so that we have to relearn it later Mm -hmm. when we mess up, right. Mm -hmm. When we miss that empathy marker, when somebody puts themselves out there as vulnerable and we blow it for whatever reason like maybe we're distracted or maybe like the whole that felt like a lot of information and I can't handle it um we always have the power and option to circle back and to repair and and to repair and that repair can be so powerful you know when I was teaching parenting classes I still use this analogy I guess it's like if you were to take a piece of wood like a piece of balsa wood, you know, like the stuff that you make. The flimsy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The flimsy model airplane stuff. And you like squeeze it. (laughs) It like breaks all apart, right? Crushes. And if you use wood glue to put it back together, you actually will create in the repair a stronger piece Mm -hmm. of wood, right? And that is very true for emotional repair as well. Mm-hmm. Right. When you come circle back around and truly meet someone with empathy and and accountability. Right. And saying, like, I did this. I blew I messed it up. I yeah. want to I want to be here for you. Mm-hmm. And can we try it again? Right. That feeling to be on the receiving end of that is like. Oh, mm-hmm. OK. Right. Right. And instead of feel painfully alone right yeah and you know there's the beliefs that folks have and and being able to kind of look out across the sea of people in their lives and say this person has been there for me this person hasn't whatever and they have those stories that that get created and those repair moments then become ways to make the story a little bigger a little richer and as you said like help to reinforce the belief that they're not alone. And then I'm going to geek out about brains for a second here, right? Like, yeah, sorry. But if we think about our, our brains and because we are social animals, when we're interacting with other people and the same types of patterns get created, then these shortcuts get made in our brains. However, Mm -hmm. when those repair moments come in, it gives our brains the chance to create like this offshoot and a way for us to not necessarily have those automatic responses anymore or to start believing something different. So if I'm someone who has experienced a lot of adults in my life letting me down, I might have this belief that I shouldn't say anything because no one's going to be there for me. Mm -hmm. And maybe, maybe my mom invites a conversation and then I start talking about how I sometimes think about jumping off the Fremont bridge and I see her totally shut down. That reinforces my belief that adults aren't going to be there for me. And I now feel shame and like I have burdened my mom. But if she comes back later that day, the next day and says, you know what, Jess, I wasn't in a place to really listen to you. I didn't expect it to get 
that specific or that dark. I'm sorry I wasn't ready. I've checked in with myself. I know what I'm going to do to take care of myself. So please tell me more about what you're thinking and feeling. Like, just describing that feels like, in my body, even though that particular scenario hasn't played out, like, my shoulders feel looser. I feel like I'm breathing easier. And I've got, like, tears in my eyes, but I'm a crier, <laughs> so. Yes. <laughs> and... I have I I have tears in my heart. Uh, they don't always make it make it out of my eyes, but like picturing that kid in that scenario and how they would feel to hear that and to have that change and have that different experience is an opening that they didn't have the day before. And I know we often say to families that the biggest protection for their kids is supportive adults Mm -hmm. and there's a reason we say that and it's because it is and our kids know themselves and they know what they need and they have different ways of asking for it and if they're not being heard they might turn the volume up or on the opposite end of the spectrum they might get real quiet and Either way, they're looking to be seen and heard for who they are. And I know we talk, we're talking about gender a lot because that's what this is about. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the theme of this show. (laughs) That's the theme of the show. And at the same time, I think it's important to remember that people are not suicidal just because they're trans. Oh, that's a great call out. Yeah. Yeah. And not all trans people are suicidal. Also a great call out. It's not the transness that makes them suicidal. It's the way that people who are not trans and don't understand them treat them. Correct. Or even, frankly, the way other trans people treat them. Yeah. When we think about non-binary gender fluid folks who are told that they're not trans enough and like, what does that do? Oh, mean. That's a different episode. <laughs> we'll do a whole series on yeah. non-binary identities. Yes. Um, but that's part of it. And sorry if this freaks other people out again, <laughs> but people can be suicidal for reasons other than their gender identity. And you can affirm your young person till the cows come home. But if there's another source of pain, there still needs to be that opening and that curiosity to have that conversation. And here's the hopeful piece. You've figured out how to do it with their gender identity and how to have that conversation and how to invite the strength and the courage on both sides of the relationship so you can do it for another reason. And I have a a couple other thoughts. One is that there is this reality, right? And, and it's because our society is not open enough to allow for people just to kind of live their lives for any number of reasons. But we named this at the beginning, the amount of resilience and creativity and ability to find connection through the dark is just mind-blowing. And mm. every young mm-hmm. person that I sit with that I think, Jesus, how how have you gotten this far? There's just a spark or a fight or something. Even if it's just like, I'm not going to let anyone be the reason that I'm not here anymore. There's something that keeps these young people going that is probably never going to be quantifiable or studyable or... You know, there's all these studies about resilience and what makes people resilient, but I'm just, I am, I'm constantly inspired and blown away and honored to sit with these folks who are in incredible pain and still are the kindest, most compassionate people in their families. And, you know, when I talk to their parents, when I do phone intakes over and over again, I hear this kid is the best sibling 
this kid would build a bridge for someone. This kid is mm-hmm. so kind to the family animals. Mm-hmm. This kid's talented. This kid, you know, fill in the blank. And so I, I just ask people to hold that too and to not also leave with this message that like if your kid comes out as trans or if your loved one comes out as trans that it means that they will have a sad and terrible life because I think that trans folks are rad and total badasses. Me too. Yes. So that's like point number one. Point number two is remembering transness does not equal the suicide. Whew. This is a big one, y'all. Our first really heavy one. We'll do more, but not back to back, I promise. It's Suicide Prevention Month, and I really want to call out that using a trans person's correct pronouns and names is suicide prevention. Loving them for who they are is suicide prevention. And loving them for who they are is what we're all about here. I'm so grateful for you hanging in and listening to this important and challenging campfire today. Also, thanks again to Jess for sharing their time and nerd brain with us. They're on staff here at camp, so we'll be hearing from them again down the road. All of us here at Camp Wildheart, listeners and counselors, are here to support you. So don't be a stranger. You can reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram at Wild Heart Society. If you've got a question you want us to answer or a story to share about a beautiful moment with your own affirming family, don't hesitate to email us at camp at wildheartsociety.org. Thanks again for showing up here and for your kids. Be sure to subscribe for free to the podcast so you don't miss out on any future campfires. And give us a rating. Rating the podcast helps other people find us. And we want to make sure that everyone who needs us knows that there's a spot for them at Camp Wildheart.